Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find links to help you purchase the music you hear on the show and support the Jazz Session at the same time. And you'll find a donate button where you can securely give a little money back to the show if you feel like it's given a little something to you. If you'd like to become an underwriter of the Jazz Session, please contact me. You'll find out how to do that at the contact page at thejazzsession.com. My guest today is guitarist Steve Cardenas. He has been on far too many records to count, and he's got a new solo album now on Sunnyside with Ben Allison on bass and Rudy Royston on drums. Uh, I just enjoy the heck out of this record, which begins with this tune, Burt. My guest is Steve Cardenas. He's got a great new CD out on Sunnyside called West of Middle, and it's my pleasure to have Steve here to talk about it. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks a lot for having me here. This uh, this album makes me really happy when I listen to it, and uh, one of the first things I wanted to ask you about was uh, what the the kind of compositional process is like for you, and whether it's... Uh, you find yourself, you know, sitting at the at the piano or at the guitar every day, working on something, or whether it's inspiration that strikes. Um, because I have my own guesses about how it might work, just given what I hear. But I'm interested in how it actually works. Yeah, I, you know, from just talking to different musician friends over the years, I think it's different for everyone, really. For me, um, it usually happens. It's, it's usually not planned. And often it's it's just um, I might be waiting for someone to come for a lesson. There are tunes that have started from that from that place, 
and there is times where I'm maybe working on something else, some other music or a certain musical concept, and I get an idea, something starts to take form. Um, there's no real rhyme or reason to it, but I do know this, that usually if one shows up, then another one starts to show up within around that same time period. So I have a tendency to write in, you know, kind of inspirational time periods. And then there'll be long periods of time where I'm, you know, either working on other people's music or just practicing guitar or music stuff. Um, it, you know, that's that's the best I can do to kind of narrow it down. Um, and, and then I usually compose on guitar. I don't really play piano. Um, sometimes I'll think of a melody just on my own away from an instrument. But um, a lot of things take shape while I'm playing the guitar. And Steve, is there a, an editing process for you either inside of these inspirational periods or following them? Yeah, there's definitely an editing process. And, you know, some tunes come out, they almost play themselves in many ways. But, I mean, that's not the common thing, you know. I might get, you know, 75% of a tune written just in, in kind of one session. doesn't mean I'm going to finish it the next day or even a week later, though that often is the case, um, because the tune has kind of established its own momentum. Um, some tunes I'll, I'll write like, you know, a quarter of it, and it'll feel really strong to me, but I don't necessarily feel like I'm hearing what's supposed to come next, and, and uh, there's been times where what comes next happens within a month or a couple of weeks. There's been times where what comes next happens two years later. <laughs> you know, I might just, if it doesn't come within a certain time period, I'll kind of shelve it and just say, okay, I'll write down what I got, and... Um, you know, maybe something will come to me. And there's there's been several instances where that's happened. As a matter of fact, um, the first tune on the record, Bert, um, I would say the A sections of that tune were written fairly immediately, and then the bridge came like a year or two later. When I, re when I felt really good about what I had, but I, I feel like the tune wasn't complete, and I wanted to bring it into a band that I had been playing in at the time called the Wallisons, which was led by Kenny Wallison, uh, because we had played, we normally played a lot of kind of funkier music or groove music, and I thought that tune would work. And then, with that kind of intention in mind, the bridge just kind of came to me. You know, we played that tune like twice. The band kind of gradually dissolved over time. And uh, when I was getting ready to do this record with Ben and Rudy, I, I pulled that tune back out and thought, you know what, I think this is the right situation for this. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, one thing, uh, one thing about this record, uh, when I first um, started in, in radio, uh, somebody once said to me, if you, when you're announcing the songs, if they have words, they're songs, and if they don't, they're tunes. And which obviously always seemed 
a little ridiculous, but in any case, um, is is like a distinction that has remained in my brain for all these years. And however, that to me kind of implies that there's some separation, that there's not a, a singability or a song-like form to things that don't have words. And one of the things that really struck me about this record was that these really feel like songs. And I don't mean that in a in a facile way or that they're not intellectually stimulating, but just that they're in many cases gorgeous and that they seem to have... Uh, a beautiful kind of melodic, really fully formed, mature melodic uh, aspect to them. Um, I wonder if maybe if you could, if there's anything about that that you'd like to to react to. Well, thanks, because that to me is like a high compliment to <laughs> refer to tunes that don't have words as songs. And actually, I've heard that distinction before too. And I think it might be a technical distinction, like you know something that by definition is the case. Um, it doesn't mean, like you say, instrumental tunes or anything less, but a lot of times instrumental music isn't necessarily that singable. I mean, it still might be really intriguing melodies and, and amazing forms and everything. You know, I, I've kind of seen myself, or, or at least a part of myself, as, I mean, I, I, I've feel I'm a jazz musician in many ways, but I also love so much other music that I feel connected, you know, to rock and singer-songwriter stuff and Bob Marley and, <laughs> you know. So I know that what will happen when I write a tune, I'm not trying to write a jazz tune, I'm not trying to write anything, I'm just seeing what, what whatever starts to formulate, I'm going to go with it and finish it, whether or not I play it in whatever group is a decision I make later. There, I, ha- I certainly have a lot of songs that never see the light of day in terms of performance. And, and, and a good many of those are probably could have words, actually. There's a, a couple of, of uh, singers that I've been honored to have them write lyrics. They've asked to write lyrics to my tunes. One of them was Rebecca Martin, and she recorded on, on her uh, record, Be- People Behave Like Ballads. It came out a few years ago, um, a tune that I had recorded on my first record under the title Potter T, and, and she titled it, what did she title it? Uh, You're the Same But Different. And Kate McGarry also um, had a tune, uh, or uh, wrote lyrics to a tune of mine that I, I originally called Del Sonote, and she did an amazing job. Um, so I appreciate that observation I feel like that I would agree that there's an element of truth to it, that I, I have a tendency to write melodies that aren't linear, that might be more, you know, singable. Or It's not necessarily intentional. It just kind of is what happens. But um, then I have some tunes that aren't like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know. <laughs>
Steve, can you uh, can you tell people about the two uh, wonderful musicians who join you on this record? Uh, uh, well, Ben Allison is on bass, and Rudy Royston is on drums. And um, Ben, I met originally. I had subbed for um, the guitar chair. Doug Womble was playing with a Millennial Territory Orchestra band led by Stephen Bernstein. And I subbed one night. I'd subbed with that band a few times, but Ben happened to be playing bass that night. And that was the first time we met. We kind of knew of each other, but we'd never formally met and never played together. So this was, I think, late in 04. And we kind of hit it off. You know, we just, you know, remember talking on the break and... Then he called me up like a few days later and said, would you be interested in, you know, playing a gig? I'm thinking about starting a band with guitar. And next thing you know, he started this whole other band, a quartet that involved Ron Horton. And the drum chair was a little bit floating at the time. Gerald Cleaver did it. Mike Serene ended up being the, the regular drummer. But, um, it, and I've been in that band ever since. That band has gone through several evolutions, and one of the more recent ones is that Rudy is now the drummer in the band, and Jenny Scheinman plays violin in the band, and Shane Hensley plays trumpet. Really fun band, and I'm lucky to still be part of things. Uh, I'm glad Ben still wants to use guitar. <laughs> because <laughs> he's used, uh, you know, I think Frank Kim- Kimbrough plays piano with him for a long time, and he even had a Cora player on one of his records, Peace Pipe. So he's uh, he has eclectic taste for sure. But um, Ben and Rudy had, or Ben and I had played with Rudy for the first time on a Jenny Scheinman gig. Jenny had kind of hired all of us to play with her over at Barbez in Brooklyn. And um, we just, uh, I remember Ben and I talking afterwards going, wow, you and Rudy play so great together immediately, you know. <laughs> And so it was just, you know, one thing led to the next, and I decided to hire them. I mean, Ben had been doing trio gigs with me, and I decided to have Rudy in it. It just clicked. It, it was like instant chemistry. So I went with it, and next thing you know, you know, the opportunity arose when Ben was you know, reforming his group, and he, he really wanted to include Rudy on that. So that's the history in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, although I had heard, started listening to you on record uh, more than a decade before, I think the first time I ever saw you was, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I think you played a jazz festival in Rochester that I was at with Ben's band. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even sure how many years ago that was now, but it was pre, certainly the, the pre-Jenny Scheinman band. It was might, before it, that. might it have been Buffalo? Could have been. Yeah, because I remember we went up to Buffalo, it was, you know, in the cold weather, it was... I think it was when we were still a quartet. Probably me and Ron Horton, most likely. I think that's right, yep. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that yep. was a lot of fun. That was a great band. Oh, it's, it's really fun music. And there's a, there's a certain... Ben and I don't write alike, but there's certain areas in our writing where we connect, and I think we both like to have sometimes a lot of groove. We both like free playing, out of time playing, and we both like groove. But there's a, uh, I don't know, you know, with all of that said, there's a certain undefinable quality that connects us musically, you know. 
Yeah, I thought the very same thing. I, right from the very first track, uh, which is Bert, the track that you were you were talking about earlier, having come back to 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 finish the the uh, other sections. That there's a moment in that where uh, kind of Ben comes to the to the fore, and uh, it, it's just it's so wonderfully organic. I mean, you guys just it just sounds. There's no way you could identify who was the leader, and it's just all <laughs> of a piece. It's just a band. It just sounds like a band, which I I really like. I think it's great. Well, you know that it's interesting you say that because. We did the CD release at the Jazz Standard on June 1st, and it went fantastic, and we got a great New York Times review. And that was exactly um, one of the main points the reviewer, Nate Chinon, made in that article was that we really sounded like a band, and it didn't sound like there was, you know... He was kind of making the point that a lot of guitar trios, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it sounds like, you know token leader with his rhythm section, you know. And I really feel like we are a band, that, that we play together and we do things together. And even if I'm soloing, I feel like they're equal participants <laughs> in what's going on. I'm, I don't need them to, you know, back me up, per se. I just, I just want them to be there and do whatever they hear, and, you know, for the next moment. You know. <laughs> Um, kind of talking a little bit about uh, your work um, outside of the role of, of leader. I think I first heard you, although I've, it seems like I've been listening to you for as long, almost as long as I, I can remember, but I think I first heard you when uh, you were uh, in one of the, the Electric Bebop band records and have obviously since um, I've kind of gotten to the point now where if I flip over a new record and I see your name on the back, then even if I don't know the name of the leader, I will generally listen. And um, One thing I wanted to ask you about was you have such a, a diverse resume um, as a, as a sideman and as a, as a member of other people's groups. And I wanted to ask you about the question of kind of musical identity when you do all that kind of work and, and whether that comes into it at all. Do you try to maintain some sort of thing that is identifiably yours or is that not really the point how, how does it work for you when you're playing other people's music uh, under their direction I think the thing is that a lot of time I'm asked to be part of you know whatever group or recording session because of just the way I play 
So even if it's, you know, I'll, I'll think about what it is, you know, I'll, you know, if it's musically different, like, well, you know, they want me to be part of this, but I still have to, you know, feel like I want to do what's best for what the music, what's going on with the music. You know? So it's not like I'm, you know, playing the same per se. In Ben's band, I use a lot of, you know, distorted sounds and more rock type sounds. There's some groups that I play with where I'm maybe playing a little more bebop-ish, you know, more of a warmer sound. In Motion's band, it's kind of a cross of all of that. But I don't ever feel like I'm putting on different hats. I, I guess that's the thing that's important is that I, I'm, it, I don't feel like I'm a studio musician where, okay, now I'm going to change guitars and do this style. Because you know, it's not about styles, it's really more about just taking who you are and going into the situation and saying, okay, I have to serve the music, but, you know, still be myself. It's not much of a conscious thought, even though I say that, you know, I generally feel like each one of those situations, you know, often it's someone I know or have played with a bit, so it's pretty comfortable. Best case scenario is I get to know the music pretty well before recording or or a gig, but that isn't always the case. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I know what you mean. There, there is a lot of diversity in some of the things I've been involved with, but it's all, again, like I had mentioned earlier, you know, there's a whole lot of music that I love, and I'm actually glad I get asked to participate in it. Well, I'm hoping I sound like me through all of it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> One thing, uh, one thing I didn't know about you until I was doing the the research for this interview, and I guess just because I I wouldn't have a a reason to discover this thing, but was the uh, the Thelonious Monk um, a fake book and uh, Monk's music's, and I have seen other fake book renditions of Monk's tunes, which uh, they strike me as very difficult to transcribe. And if the results of the transcriptions that I have seen are any indication, they are in fact difficult to transcribe. And so uh, I just wanted to ask about uh, the the project of compiling a book like that and and what it was like to kind of delve at that level um, into that particular music. Well. Um there's a story to this that I'm going to try to edit down as much as possible because it can get lengthy. But um, first off, Don Sickler was the editor of that book, and really, you know, even though I'm listed as transcriber, he and I worked e- at very least equally on that book, and he, and he participated in some transcription as well. He, where do I start with this? <laughs> Over the years, I'd play in played in several groups, you know, through different towns that I lived in that played Monk's music and had various friends that would introduce me to the lesser-known tunes and, you know, eventually compiled charts, um, a book of tunes, and, and pretty much everything. So by the time I had lived in New- I moved to New York in 95, and I, I remember in the winter of 98, I just I decided to take that book out 
and start kind of going through everything and tweaking it and, you know, just making sure things were accurate. And I, I made a lot of changes during that time. It took me almost a couple of years to do that because I get busy with other stuff and put it down for a while. But at the very end, I, I, I wrote everything out nicely, kind of lead sheet style, had all the information, but my intention was to make charts where you could take them to a session or a, a gig and not have to comb through, you know, lots of chord voicings. Or sometimes people get real monkophile about it and they want to write down everything that he played, you know, and it's not necessarily part of the composition. You know, so my intention was to not water it down, but to just present the melody, have some chord changes, and write in some voicings if they were key to the the composition itself, and some of his tunes are, you have to write everything out, like Crepuscule and Nelly, and, you know, they're truly composed. And Steve, if I can break in on you for one second, yeah, yeah. How, how do you how do you determine what is uh, integral to the composition? Is that by taking, like, an aggregate of all the different times he performed it on record and figuring out, well, he didn't he didn't put this thing in this time, so maybe it's not exactly. part of Okay. That's exactly it, actually. So, so... I'm trying to I'm trying to condense this story. So this one friend of mine suggested that I show these to Don Sickler. I called him up. He said, "Why don't you come over?" Showed him to him, and he said, "Well, I like the way these are done. Hal Leonard has been asking me to do a book for a while of everything, but I never wanted to do it by myself. I always wanted to work on it with someone. So if they give me the green light, would you want to do it?" I said, "Sure, of course. You know, I wasn't even trying to do a book." So he got the, the green light to do it, and next thing you know, I'm in a this project, <laughs> and and Don has been handled the, a lot of the publishing of the of Monk's music for the family, I think since the early '90s. So he already had a lot of tunes himself, and one of the great things was he had a handful of xeroxes of original transcriptions of original charts in Monk's hand, and to me that added like immense credibility to the book. Yeah. A lot of them were from the early Blue Note recordings. And he mentions it on the back of the book. You do, you have to kind of read it between the lines some. He, he will just mention something like, we had the lead sheets to this one, you know. <laughs> but, um, man, so, you know, it wouldn't have happened without Don. But at the same time, you know, he, like he said, he felt like he needed someone to work on it with him with the same intensity. And we actually ended up working great together, and I felt incredibly honored to be a part of it.
what what was it uh, kind of early on that it, that attracted you uh, to Monk's music? I mean, it seems like everybody has to confront it at some time, but some people get really absorbed into it, and and you know some just take it as part of the repertoire and move on. Uh, what was it that really drew you in? Well, I had a couple of friends um, when I you know I'm from Kansas City originally, and a couple of friends from there, Steve Million and Gerald Spate, uh, piano and bass respectively. Steve Million lives in Chicago now. Really great musicians. And created one of the most fantastic Monk recordings ever, which is the one that he did a few years back yeah. with all the vintage keyboards. Oh, my God, I love totally. that Yeah, record. With, with Guido. Yeah. yeah, that's a brilliant oh, well, record. Man, those guys, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just I no, love that. No, no, I'm glad you did. Um, <laughs> so, you know, those guys really, ins- you know, I mean, you know, everyone, when they first hear of Monk, Here's around Midnight Street, No Chaser, Blue Monk, all those. But these guys were really into the obscure tunes, and when I would go hang out at their place, they'd be playing them on the you know turntable, and I just wow, those are amazing, you know. <laughs> and they started transcribing themselves some of these tunes, and then I moved and lived in San Francisco for a while, and I was in a band called Evidence with other great musicians, Randy Vincent on guitar and Bill Douglas on bass, Robert Kaufman on drums. And Randy and I transcribed, again, more and more tunes. So it was this kind of process of accumulation, you know, over time. Of I, I loved the music, but it just, there was a large element of it that was like I was with people that loved the music too, so I was in the right places. <laughs> That's great. Did you, uh, am I right in thinking that you just came back from the Stanford Jazz Workshop? I did. Can you talk about that? I really don't know anything about it at all. Can you just tell folks what it is and uh, and what the experience was like for you? It was, it was their 39th year, actually, and it was my first time doing it. It's a week, it's a three-week-long workshop. The first two weeks uh, involve um, people of all ages, and the last week is a residency, I think it's, you know, generally more advanced players or older, um, like they guys that are, you know people that already know how to play, and they just want to be part of a of a workshop, you know, work on their playing more. It might even be professional sometimes. And then they have, um, as far as the younger musicians, they have them send in an audition tape to be part of that week. You know, so that was that was first week of August, that was that third week I was a part of an amazing faculty. It, it changes a bit every year. There are some people that come back every year, like Joshua Redman. Um, it, it was so great. Uh, Dave Douglas was there. And then, and then every night there's a performance, so I, I played as kind of an addition to Dave's quintet that night. And I also played with Rebecca Martin and Larry Grenadier and Larry Goldings. And that was maybe needless to say, really fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not I, bad. <laughs> I used to play with Rebecca a lot until um, I got busy with Ben. <laughs> and um, so it had been a while since we played together, and it was really, really great, really fun. And you, you do so much work uh, in the education arena, everything from uh, the new school, and I know you've done a couple things at Cal Arts, and you do a lot of the, the kind of workshop uh, scene and I just wonder um, what what you see as kind of the role of the academy, if that's not too pretentious, in uh, in jazz nowadays. Where do you 
where do you see it fitting in? Well, you you, you uh, throw out the easy questions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's, there's only uh, thirty seconds left. So if you know, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I mean, anybody I've ever talked about teaching, I mean, it's again like when we were talking about songwriting. I mean, everybody has a different approach, different things they stress, but. The role in general is is just to you know provide information that not only you're not only presenting like the mechanics like you know theoretical aspects and you know certain technical aspects of the instrument you might be you know involved presenting but you you have to present a feeling of like the past and the present and connecting that. A lot of a lot of the younger kids get attached to whoever's really popular in the day, you know, which that can be fine. I mean, I mean, often or usually ends up being really great players, and then at times they lose sight of kind of you know what happened even like ten years before <laughs> or twenty <laughs> years before, you know, and they don't know about a lot of that stuff. And I feel like, you know, it, when I give private lessons, sometimes. With a new school, if somebody takes like six lessons from me, sometimes one of those lessons will just be a listening session, and I'll just say, "Have you heard this? Have you heard this?" And and most of the time, the answer is no. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I think that's in a way not even. I mean, that that's kind of the way it's been. It's like the storytelling uh, tradition, you know, of, you know, passing down the stories and they get altered a little over time sometimes but we have recordings so actually you know like I played Sonny Rollins for a student today Sonny Moon for two and you know this is a funny thing because actually I always feel like people play that melody they don't really listen to the way he plays the melody (laughs) they don't play that little (laughs) rhythm that Sonny you know at the end he goes you know, right. nobody ever does, and I always feel like, well, that's part of the tune. <laughs> it's it's not just the same rhythm through the whole thing, you know. But that's the sort of thing. If you know, if they, if you show that to a student, and they're like, oh wow. So yeah, we have to really listen and and be aware and pay close attention to what's what we're listening to and what's going on, and they're. We just don't learn tunes out of a fake book. We go to recordings and hear the way they're done so we can get a deeper understanding. You know? So that's the thing. Just try to give them as broad of a scope as possible on what you're presenting.
seems like it must be uh, must be pretty amazing to be able to be there. I mean, there's still a ton of music I haven't heard, and so I'll have first times with a lot of music. But I'll never have like another first time listening to a Love Supreme or listening to Sunny Moon for two or that. That's kind of the uh, many of the foundational works, and it, it must oh, be pretty special to be in the room the first time a student hears some of that stuff. Yeah, well, this 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 guy today, I asked him if he'd ever. You know, I always like to ask them if they know it, and then inevitably they'll play the way most people play it, which is okay. You know, it's just one of those things. Sometimes things get played a certain way, and that's the accepted way, and then that's the way it is. I said, have you heard the original? And he said, no. And so I, I think we were going to have fun. <laughs> because Sonny's first few choruses, I mean, he, he's playing like... he's ping-ponging between a couple of notes and playing all these little things in between but not much and it's just like the epitome of solo development it's just incredible you know and that this i think it hit this guy hard you know he was like wow not about chord changes is it (laughs) (laughs) yeah he was he's pretty good that sonny rollins guy yeah i think think he's he's, all right he's got a future in this music Well, my guest is uh, Steve Cardenas. He has a new album out on Sunnyside that is called West of Middle. And uh, as I said earlier on, it makes me happy every time I hear it. And uh, I highly recommend it for your repeated listening. Steve, it's been uh, a real pleasure talking to you about uh, your music. And I hope we'll get the chance to do it again. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for all your support. That's music from Steve Cardenas and his new Sunnyside recording, West of Middle. I'm Jason Crane, and this is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find links to purchase the music you hear on the show. And if you use those links to do it, you'll help support the Jazz Session. And you'll find a donate button if you'd like to give a direct contribution to the show.
If you're interested in becoming an underwriter of the Jazz Session, please contact me. You can figure out how to do that on the contact page. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. They've got a great new recording called Farcical Built for Six, which you'll find at respectsextet.com. The liner notes for that album were written by Jeff Vrabel, a good friend of mine, a humor writer whose work is online at jeffvrabel.com, and his brother Dave Vrabel designed the logo for the Jazz Session. Thanks so much for listening. Please come back next time for... Oh, I almost forgot. Yikes! Please, first, go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.